Okay, we're going to pray for Sam. Um, I met Sam for the first time yesterday, and I can tell you already that he's a wonderful chap from the south of England. He's already heard all the anti-English jokes. So if we can keep those for another speaker who'll be arriving later on in the week, that would be good. And uh, Sam, you're really welcome. Um, could I ask you to just answer a question or two? Sure. Yep. So where are you from in England? Uh, from a town called Maidenhead in Berkshire, which is a bit to the west of London. Okay, does it, do any of us know where that is? If you know where that is, let's put your hand up. Okay, great. So, there you are. Good. Um, and uh, tell us what you were doing a week ago, Sam. Uh, a week ago was Tuesday, isn't it? Right, yeah. Um, I, was, I was in Atlanta last week. Our, the the organisation I work for, we have our main headquarters in Atlanta, so I was, I was in meetings all morning, I think, last week. So, if Sam begins to stumble over his words a bit, it's called jet lag. Um, but actually, I think he did a fantastic job last night, even with the jet lag. Yeah? And the format will be that Sam will speak for 20 minutes, half an hour. But really, we would like to get uh, a good Q&A going today. Um, this particular subject... Uh, I think I would say, is a very painful subject for the church at the moment. And um, it's one of the subjects that I've observed um, tends to polarize people at times, and particularly um, given the nature and the content. For a lot of people involved, it's very personal. Um, I like to pray that, uh, as Sam speaks, we would really have a sense of God's compassion for this area, and that um, regardless of our own personal views, whether um, uh, we feel something strongly or not, that we would respect those people who do not share our opinions, and that we would try to remember that, um, you know, we primarily come to Christ due to God's mercy towards us, regardless of our issues. And that when we stand at the cross, we really stand with nothing but um, who we are, so um, with that, let's, let's just pray. Father God, we want to ask for your presence this morning as we seek to discern your will and your purposes, um, not only for ourselves, but for our communities and for our nation. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of having Sam come and speak to us this morning. We pray that you would anoint him with your words for us, and that as he shares his story, we would show him the mercy and the grace that we have experienced uh, in being part of your family. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so. Well, thank you very much um, for that. And thank you for your welcome. It's been lovely to, to, to be here. And um, I have was in a, a men's Bible study group a number of years ago, and one of the members was from, from Northern Ireland and was always the, the, the cheeriest of us first thing in the morning. And one occasion he said, I'm going to cook us all an Ulster fry. So I, I hosted it and he said to me, do you, do you have any oil, cooking oil? I said, yeah, I've got a big bottle of cooking oil. He used the entire bottle of cooking oil <laughs> for four of us. It was, um, so that, I, that I'm here at all standing alive is, is, is quite something. But anyway. Um, thank you for, for coming along to this session. Thank you for, for, I assume, for caring about this issue. Uh, when we think about issues of, of sexuality, we're, I'm sure most of us aren't thinking about society and culture and those sorts of things. Most of us probably 
are thinking of particular individuals that we know. I'm sure most of us will, will have someone who is close to us who either identifies as LGBT plus or as same-sex attracted or something like that. And so when we think of this issue, we're thinking of, of people that we know and love very dearly. And so this is not abstract or, or theoretical. This is, for many of us, very, very close to home. And for some of us, it's even closer to home than that. For, for some of us, this is not just to do with, with people who are close to us, but actually it's part of our own experience and part of our own story as well. And that's certainly been the case um, for me. The, the only romantic and sexual feelings I've, I've ever experienced have been towards other men. Uh, it took me a very long time to, to recognize that. As a teenager, I'm, I'm pretty slow at the best of times. It took a few years for me to kind of recognize what was going on. But I remember when I was 17, I was traveling home uh, from school. I was waiting for a bus. I remember waiting at the bus stop and thinking, and this is the very first time this thought entered my mind, but I remember thinking, I think I'm gay. And as soon as those words came into my mind, it, it was then obvious. I remember thinking, yeah, I don't have any of those feelings for girls that my friends seem to have. And I do have those feelings for some of my male friends. And I remember at that stage, I was beginning to apply for, for university. And I remember thinking, this could be something I explore at university. Um, I knew that the, the universities I was applying for in those days had LGB societies. And I remember thinking I could, I could maybe join one of those societies and explore what this is like. And uh, no one at home would need to know. Uh, this is, I know, catastrophically old of me, but this was before the internet, if you can remember those dark days we used to, to live in. And so it was entirely possible to be one thing at university and another thing back home and no one else would know. So that was what I was planning to do. But before, between uh, that bus stop and arriving at university, I came to faith. As I mentioned last night, I was invited to our, uh, a local church youth ministry. I heard the gospel. I felt drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. I knew that I was someone he had come for. And I remember thinking, this is, this is someone I want to follow. This is someone I want to, to trust in. And so one of the first questions I therefore had to think through as a new believer was, what does Jesus think about sexuality? Having just come to terms with my own sexual feelings and now wanting to, to follow Jesus Christ, that was the big question. What does Jesus think on this issue? And I had no idea. But I knew that whatever Jesus said... I could, I could be okay with because I knew I could trust him. So what I want to do is, is to share a couple of scriptures that, that speak into this issue. Um, we're largely going to be looking at Matthew's gospel and a couple of verses in, in Mark's gospel. And then to think about how that relates to the good news. If Christianity is good news, how is it good news for our LGBT plus friends? So the first passage I, I really got to grips with was uh, Matthew 15. If you want to find that, there's no point in me reading out a page number, but uh, Matthew chapter 15 and verses 19 and 20. Uh, in these verses, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. They were, they were convinced that sin was something out there somewhere and that you needed to, to avoid it. Um, it was a bit like an infection. You just had to kind of stay away from infected people and places and then you could be kind of spiritually healthy. 
Um, so let me read Matthew 15, verse 19. Can you all hear me, by the way? Good. I can hear them more than I can hear me, but if you can hear me more than you can hear them, that's good. We're right? Brilliant. Okay, excellent. So Jesus says something that to the Pharisee and the scribes would have been absolutely devastating. Uh, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So just think about that. If you're a Pharisee, if your whole worldview and, and spirituality is based on sin is something out there somewhere that you need to avoid, Jesus blows that up by saying, no, sin is in your heart. It's not out there to be avoided. It's in here to be confessed and admitted. And so Jesus is saying, listen, if you if you are committed to avoiding sin, you have to avoid your own heart. You can see why that the Pharisees began to take a dislike to Jesus. And I want to suggest that that's, that's equally devastating to our own culture. Because our, our own culture says something like this, that the, the way for you to flourish, the way for you to be the real you, the authentic you, is you've got to look deep inside your heart. And when you look deep inside your heart, you will find out who you truly are. No one else can tell you who that is. And whoever that turns out to be deep inside your heart, you've got to embrace that, celebrate that, and live that out. And it's the job of the rest of us to affirm it, whatever it is. And yet Jesus is saying, if you look deep inside your heart, you won't find the solution to your angst. You'll find the cause of it. Because Jesus is saying, deep inside our hearts, we are not right. And that's the case, he says, for all of us. Uh, that is the condition of, of humanity. Our hearts are not right. We, we suffer the same spiritual condition. We manifest it in slightly different ways. The symptoms will vary from person to person. But we all suffer from the same root issue of hearts that are not right. So Jesus' words are not just challenging to the, the religious Pharisee. They're, they're challenging to the, the secular Westerner as well. Uh, Jesus lists some of the signs of a heart that is not right. He gives us a, a few of the, the symptoms of this uh, spiritual disease. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just a sampling. But Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All of those things are manifestations of a heart that is not right with God. And one of the things Jesus includes in that list is the phrase sexual immorality. Uh, that is the, the translation of a Greek word, porneia. Uh, porneia literally meant any sexual behavior outside of marriage. It was a kind of an umbrella term for any kind of sexual sin. And that would have included premarital sex. It would have included adultery, which Jesus mentions as well. would have included something like prostitution. And in the context Jesus is speaking, and that would have included any kind of same-sex sexual behavior as well. Uh, Jesus is saying any sexual behavior outside the covenant of marriage is not right. Um, it's not that sexual sin is the only sin. Jesus mentions things like slander. The Bible also talks about things like greed. So it's not as if sexual sin is the only thing that, that, that God is bothered about, but it is one of the things Jesus says that is defiling of us. One of the ways our, 
our hearts show themselves not to be right with God. Now, I mention that because there's a, there's a myth doing the rounds that says that Jesus was entirely neutral when it comes to sexual ethics. He was just kind of happy-go-lucky, live and let live, very kind of sexually tolerant. And that simply is not the case. Jesus doesn't name homosexuality. It wasn't an issue that was in contention in his, in his time and, and culture. But the things he teaches us about sex and marriage help us to know how to think about issues of, of same-sex behavior. So that was the first passage I, I kind of came across, that sex outside of marriage is wrong. I, I'd sort of vaguely heard that Christians believe that, so that wasn't too shocking for me. Uh, the second passage is a, a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, again, Jesus is with Pharisees having a bit of a, uh, shall we say, spirited discussion with them. I'm so thankful for the Pharisees. If it wasn't for them and they're, they're kind of being annoying to Jesus, we wouldn't have half the teaching we have in the, in the gospel. So we, we can be grateful for that. But in Matthew 19, verse 3, they come up to Jesus and we're told they're coming up to him to test him. Okay, they've got a question about divorce. They're not asking it because they want Jesus' wisdom. They're not seeking to learn from him. Actually, they're seeking to try to trap him. They're trying to get Jesus into a, a sort of gotcha moment. And so they, they're very, I mean, they're very clever. They ask this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, that's the question. Can you, can you ditch your wife for any reason? Is that all right? Uh, some rabbis at the time were teaching that very thing. One rabbi was teaching that if, if your wife burns your meal, you can divorce her. If, that, if that's sufficiently annoying, fine, divorce her. So this, is, this was not hypothetical. This was, a, this was a big issue at the time. And uh, they, they wait in verses 1 and 2 until Jesus is in the jurisdiction of Herod to ask this question. Herod, who had recently had John the Baptist both arrested and killed because of what John the Baptist taught about sexual ethics. So the Pharisees know exactly what they're doing. If Jesus says the wrong answer here, they can just call the police and say, listen, we've got someone else who's teaching something that goes against Herod's own behavior. Does Herod have another platter in the cupboard? Because we've got another head to, to stick on it. So they know what they're doing. So that's the question. Is it lawful to divorce your uh, wife for any cause? And Jesus answers with some really, really significant words, words that actually are going to be foundational for how we think about this issue. So verse 4, Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, a lot going on in those verses. The first thing Jesus is doing is gently mocking them. Okay, Pharisees prided themselves on how well they knew the scriptures. They memorized, memorized swathes of the Old Testament off by heart. So passages you and I struggle to read once, they would have known word for word. And yet Jesus says to them, have you not read, and then quotes Genesis 1. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, listen, when you, when you did your big study of Scripture, did you get as far as, I don't know, page 1 of the Bible? Did you make it to Genesis 1 verse 27? But the second thing Jesus is doing is he's showing us how significant these words are, because 
Listen carefully to what Jesus says about the Creator. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now if you look up Genesis 2 where it says, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother, it's the narrator of Genesis who writes that. Jesus says the narrator of Genesis is the creator. Uh, we've traditionally understood that Genesis was written by Moses and Jesus is saying if Moses wrote it God said it so in other words by going back to Genesis 1 and 2 Jesus is not just appealing to the best of ancient human wisdom Jesus is saying we are going back to the creator's words for us we're going back to his design for us well, Jesus is answered, uh, asked a question about divorce. He, he answers by explaining something of what marriage is. He says to them, you're not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. But notice as well, Jesus shows us you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand gender. Jesus does not begin his answer to the question about divorce simply by saying, you know, that two, two people in a marriage become one flesh. Jesus begins his answer in Genesis 1 and the fact that we're created male and female. So he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus is saying that because God has made us as sexually different... Because that is the case, because we've been created male and female, therefore we have this thing called marriage. So as far as he is concerned, marriage is predicated on our gender difference. Now, I don't need to tell you that is massively controversial. And so let me say that one of the reasons this is so controversial to our culture today is because Jesus' teaching on marriage has been controversial to every single culture. In one aspect or another, there's never been a human culture that just landed exactly on Jesus' teaching on, on sexual ethics. Uh, Jesus says... It is the male-female union that is uniquely a one-flesh union. He's not commenting on the, the capacity or otherwise for people of the same sex to have romantic feelings or to have commitment-stable relationships. Jesus' teaching is not about the strength of feelings, but about the type of union that results. Uh, sometimes Christians are, are heard to say something like, well, you know, people of the same sex can't really be committed together. Uh, I know of a number of very, very committed same-sex partnerships, and I can point to quite a few heterosexual marriages that are floundering. Now, the issue is not that the quality of the feelings involved. The issue is the type of union that results. And Jesus says the male-female union is unique. It is uniquely a one-flesh union. And actually, the, the wider story of the Bible shows us why that is the case. It's not just that Jesus is 
is arbitrarily deciding this combination is favoured and any other combination isn't. There's something about what the male-female union means that speaks to why marriage is uniquely constituted by a man and a woman. So think back to, to the, the account of creation. In Genesis 1, we have the, the account of creation, the six days of creation. It's, it's all wide-angle lens, epic, sweeping, dramatic. You've got the universe, you've got ecosystems, worlds, species. Everything is, is, is epic. There's lots of special effects and CGI and all this kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever realized how strange this is, we go from that sweeping account in Genesis 1 to, in Genesis 2, suddenly finding ourselves in a garden. And a guy and a girl get together. And the question we should be asking is, why are we here? We've just had this massive overture in Genesis 1. Why are we suddenly in a garden watching a guy and a girl get together? And the answer is, that guy and the girl getting together are a picture of what the whole Bible is going to be about. That man and that woman were literally made for each other. And their joining together becomes a picture of the eventual joining together of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. So as the Old Testament unfolds, God is not just the big sovereign authority in the sky. He is he's a groom. He's a husband. He's come to, to win a people to himself, a people he repeatedly makes covenant promises to. And his people in the Old Testament are frequently described as his bride, sadly often as his wayward bride. And their relationship to God likened to, to that of a marriage. Uh, in the New Testament, when Jesus arrives, one of the first things he calls himself is the bridegroom. He says, the bridegroom has now come. I am that divine husband who was promised to you through the Old Testament. And then again, again in the rest of the New Testament, our relationship to Jesus is spoken of in marital terms. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6 that if you uh, believe in Jesus, you are one with him in spirit. Paul quotes Genesis 2 just as a, a husband and wife become one flesh so too we unite ourselves to Jesus and become one spirit with him uh, Ephesians 5 Paul famously talks to husbands and wives and then he steps back and says guys I'm, I'm really talking about Jesus and the church that's what this is about our earthly marriages are a reflection of and a, and a picture of the ultimate marriage which exists between Jesus and his people and so that the climax of the biblical narrative is not we go to some existence called heaven and, and get all of our stuff that we've always wanted. The climax of the Bible is, is a wedding. The marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride. As the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, she comes down as a bride adorned for her husband. And the Bible says that is the marriage. And our earthly marriages are but a reflection of that and a foretaste of that. And therefore the union of the man and the woman in marriage points beyond itself to the union of Jesus and his church. 
That is why marriage is, is so specifically divined and defined in the Christian faith. That's why it's male-female. It's, it's the joining together of two unlike parties, joined together by covenant promises, and a union which itself overflows into new life. Well, Jesus speaks about that one flesh union in Matthew 19. The disciples respond by saying, well, hey, if that's the case of the man and his wife, verse 10, it's better not to marry. So here's an interesting thing. I've, I've been a pastor and a preacher for 15 years or so, spoken at many weddings. No one has ever come up to me after a wedding sermon and said what the disciples say here, that it's better not to marry. So here's the question. Am I teaching marriage in the way that Jesus teaches marriage? So the disciples say it's better not to marry if that's the case between a man and his wife. It sounds a bit like commitment, Jesus. Maybe we better give it, give it, a, give it a miss. The moment they question getting married, in the next few verses, Jesus talks about eunuchs. He talks about those who were celibate. So to, to recap, Jesus says in Matthew 15 that sex outside of marriage is a sin. And in Matthew 19, he says that marriage is between a man and a woman and the only godly alternative is to be celibate. And the question is, how is that good news? Well, let me give a, a couple of answers to that question because that was the, the big decision I had to make then as a young believer is having realized what Jesus taught do I still go with him or not the choice was do I try to fulfill my sexuality or do I follow Jesus and I knew I couldn't do both but here's why it is worth it to follow Jesus even if it involves this kind of cost uh, the first reason frankly is just because of who Jesus is if Jesus is who he claims to be, it is always going to be better to follow him. When I first became a Christian, it is because I, I realized what the death and resurrection of Jesus meant for me. And I realized if, if Jesus gave his life for me, he is someone I can trust. Whatever it involves, I can trust him. You know, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. And Jesus is more committed to your ultimate joy than even you are. And if that is the case, then it's, it's a no-brainer but to follow him. Even when his words are, are difficult for us, or his calling is painful for us, we can trust him. So one of the things I, I find myself saying to, to non-Christian friends of mine who kind of ask me about this is there's, a, there's a, a motto I saw on a friend's office wall that says those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. It's true. If you watch a music video and, and mute the volume, it looks really weird. A lot of strutting and pouting and, and weird gestures going on and all the rest of it. It should be the case that no one's Christian life makes complete sense other than 
Jesus really is who he claims to be. And so I have to say to my non-Christian friends, listen, if you, won't, if you really want to make sense of my sexual ethics, you've got to understand who Jesus is to me. I had one uh, non-Christian say to me recently, I, I just think you should change your view on marriage. And I said, you need to realize that I have my view on marriage because I follow Jesus. It's not my view, it's his view. I'm trying to follow what he says. And therefore, what you're actually asking me to do is you're actually asking me to stop following Jesus. I said, do you really think you're in a position to tell other people to stop following Jesus Christ? And they, to their credit, they hesitated. And then they said, yeah, if that's what Jesus teaches, you need to not follow him on that. And so my question then was, well, can you tell me what you've got going for you that's better than what Jesus has going for him? Such that I should follow you on this issue and not him. Because he died for me and rose again. What have you got going for you? But the other reason why this is worth doing is because that cost of discipleship actually is it's the same for all of us. What Jesus teaches about sex and marriage, if we've understood it, should be deeply challenging and deeply humbling for every one of us. Because if Jesus teaching is, is true, then every single one of us is fallen in this area of life. Every single one of us. Okay, Jesus' teaching on, on sin is, is such that it, it taints every area of life. In no area of life are we what we should be. In no area of life can we say, well, I, I don't need Jesus for that side of me. Which means when it comes to our sexuality, all of us are broken and all of us are fallen and all of us are disordered. One of the biggest misunderstandings I, I encounter when it comes to people's perceptions of, of Christian beliefs on sexuality is people say, yeah, you think that gay people are broken. And I say, no, I think all people are. On this very issue, all of us are fallen in our sexuality. And therefore, no one has any reason to look down and feel superior to anybody else. I sometimes put it this way, that there is no one who is straight. Okay, all of us are skewed when it comes to this area of life. Some of us are skewed in a same-sex attraction kind of way. Many of us will be skewed in a opposite sex attraction kind of way but whether you're attracted to men or women or both the gospel levels the playing field and puts us all in the same boat we are sexual sinners and therefore for any of us to follow Jesus is going to be costly in this area of life all of us are going to have to say no to certain sexual desires And friends, this shouldn't surprise us because Jesus' teaching in, in Mark 8 verse 34 is that discipleship is is denying self and taking up our cross and following Jesus. One of the things I learned as, a, as an early Christian is Jesus doesn't want my sexuality. He wants my life. And Jesus says that for anyone to follow him is going to involve saying a profound no to some of our deepest longings and ambitions and yearnings. 
And yet Jesus says that is the path to life. As you lose your life, you gain life. It's one of the beautiful paradoxes of the Christian life is as I deny self, I don't become less me. As I deny self and follow Jesus, I become more me. And again, that is the same for all of us. So let me just sum it up this way. If you think the cost of discipleship is too high for LGBT Christians, you think the cost of discipleship is too high for anyone. And it may be a reflection of the fact you've not really counted the cost of discipleship in your own life. Because Jesus calls all of us to yield all that we are to him. All of us have to give up our identity to him. And he says that actually doing that is the way to blessing. As we give up and turn back on certain things for Jesus, we always, always receive far, far more from him than we ever set aside. Well, I'm going to pause there because I want to leave uh, plenty of time for, for questions. So just take a minute, stretch your legs, take a deep breath, wriggle or something. I'm going to take a sip of water, then I'll see if we've got any, any questions. Okay, I don't pretend to have done any more than, than merely scratched the surface of a massive, massive and complex, very personal and sensitive issue. So that, what I've taught you is, I'm not pretending that's everything you now need to know. We've, we've entirely sorted out the issue of, of human sexuality. I've written a little book called Is God Anti-Gay, which I hope will give you a bit more on some of these things. But anyone want to start us off with a with a question you're gonna to have to shout so that i can hear you yes sir thank you very i'm going to, have to repeat the questions for those who, who who are listening in somewhere in internet land so that the question is um a lot of this comes back to genesis and the image of god and if we start tampering with the image of god and redefining that that's going to have consequences i i agree entirely so one of the things we see in genesis one is that our image bearing is is bound up with our being male and female it's the very thing that god highlights as he creates us in his image and that's that's noteworthy because we are not the only thing in creation that is male and female that's not unique to us but it is uniquely significant to us because our maleness and femaleness is is bound up with how we image god in the image of god he created him male and female he created them so in other words, we need each other as male and female to better image God. It's not that, we are, that men are half of God's image and women are half of God's image, and if you put us together, you get the whole of God's image. Each of us is the image of God, but each of us is the image of God in such a way that there are certain things we can see and perceive that the other can't, and therefore we need each other. Which is why, again, that, that the mingling of male and female is such a blessing. And therefore, the, this ultimate union of male and female provides a, a oneness that you don't find anywhere else. So I think it is absolutely key, this, this whole idea of, of what it means to be made in God's image and how God defines that is going to be very significant. And the fact that that is something that is fundamentally under, a, under attack in our own culture, I think, is, is going to be uniquely destructive for us because of that because it is so significant that's not to say there aren't legitimate questions and complexities about what male and female means and there are complicated questions to do with that um, 
one of the things that, that I've been thinking about recently is that if you, if, if people hate a ruler and they can't physically get rid of the ruler and, and actually get their hands on the ruler, the one thing they then do is they just burn the effigy of the ruler. If you can't attack the ruler, you attack his image. And I think what we're seeing in our own culture at the moment is a, is a unique <laughs> time in which the, the image of our creator God is, is being attacked as people try to kind of overthrow any concept of male, female and, and anything like that. Thank you. Anyone? Yes, sir. So if I think I've understood the question correctly. How do we, um, if we encounter people who are attracted to the same sex and Christians are very critical of that, how do we respond to that? Is that the, is that the question? Thank you. Yeah, I think we, we um, again, we, we have to recognize that Jesus is critical of of. You know, sexual immorality. The danger is that as, as Christians, we become critical of someone else's sexual immorality and we tend to be a bit more permissive about our own. So I hear Christians disproportionately being critical of homosexuality, of gay people. In our churches, there is, I can tell you, there's far more heterosexual sin going on than there is homosexual sin. But the, the nature of, and this is the case for all of us, we're all Pharisees at heart, it's much easier to be biblically faithful and holy when it comes to other people's sins than when it comes to our own. And so we can be very, very sure of our convictions when it comes to particular sins that we don't personally struggle with. But again, the gospel always levels the playing field. It's one of the, the beautiful things about the teaching of Jesus. Whatever aspect of life you're talking about, Jesus will humble you. <laughs> whatever he's talking about. So I remember doing a, a workshop for, for pastors back in England once on how we can share the good news with our LGBT friends. And one, one pastor came up to me and said, how can you talk to a gay man without being disgusted by him? And I said, by being more disgusted by your own sin, brother. It's actually, it's very, very, very dangerous to be appalled by someone else's sin and not be more appalled by your own sin. Um, in First uh, Timothy, uh, I think it's chapter 1, Paul talks about how, this is the trustworthy saying, fully of, worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Now, when Paul calls himself the worst of all sinners, I don't think it's because Paul has had a, a survey taken of the first century church and discovered he actually is the worst sinner. You know, someone had to be, turns out it's me, kind of thing. No, when Paul calls himself the worst of all sinners, I think he's saying that when you realize how sinful your own heart is, you can't really believe there's someone else out there who's worse than you. So we've got to be, we've got to, on any of these issues, we, we've got to be very humble. Um, I was always taught if you point a finger at someone, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. And that's, that's certainly the case theologically as well. So we must be very, very careful to, to name and own our own sins before deeming to expose and, and condemn the sins of someone else. So thank you for, for raising that. Which means it's not just... 
it's not just the content of our theology that's significant here. It's our tone and it's our posture. Because if you have the right truth and the wrong posture, actually you're not reflecting the gospel. And if your truth has, gives you some pretext for, for speaking down and speaking against other people in a condemning and judgmental way, then actually it's not the gospel that you are reflecting at all. It's not God's truth. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Yep. Thank you. So the, the, the comment is that actually we, we make sometimes more of a fuss about going and reaching some unreached people group on the other side of the, the world, whereas actually in our own community, there are very, very unreached LGBT people. I think that's very right. That's a very right... Sorry, the, the reality of that isn't right. The, the observation is very right. So again, the question is, are we being... So I love, one of the questions I get the most, and I, I love getting it every time it's asked, is my really good friend has invited me to their, their same-sex wedding. What do I do? And I always just, I'm so chuffed when I hear that, because I always say to them, thank you for being the kind of Christian a gay person wants at their wedding. And by the same token, if some of us are never, ever being invited to a gay wedding, the challenge is, are we being the kind of friend to the LGBT community that Jesus would be? So that's, that's the challenge. We, 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 Jesus was criticised for being a friend of sinners and for eating with sinners. I think we're, we're sometimes too far above ever being criticised for that. Thank you. There was a hand somewhere back there. Yes. So there's someone behind you. I was, was just... Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, so how do we respond to something like gay pride? Uh, do we... Some Christians go... For, say we should hate some Christians say we should love what do we do with companies who say we all need to to wear rainbow badges and that kind of stuff this is this is this is complex isn't it because um when it when it comes to gay pride I have more issues with the word pride than I do with the word gay to be honest um I don't think anyone's sexuality should be a a matter of pride um but it's hard to articulate any kind of anything less than full enthusiasm about gay pride without sounding like we're specifically singling out gay people for condemnation, which is why we've got to be very careful, I think, in, in how we say what we say, because my, my general rule of thumb is don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. Otherwise, someone will feel singled out and looked down on and judged when that's not your intention at all. So when it comes to, to gay pride, my general response is to say I don't think I think all of us are the same. Ultimately, I think we're all equal ultimately and therefore I don't want to single out any one subgroup's sexuality for special celebration or for special condemnation. And it's interesting, I was talking to a uh, uh a gay high high school student, um college student a, a few months ago who not a Christian guy, but he said to me he said, there's such a contradiction here because he says we want to be equal and yet then we're saying we have, a, we have a march and you celebrate us. And he says, we just need to work out which of those things we want. Do we want to be treated the same or do we want to be treated differently? These were his words. He's saying, if we want to be treated the same, then why are we having a parade? So there's, there's, that's worthy of discussion, I think. Yeah, when it comes to a company saying, right, our company policy is we're all going to wear a rainbow flag 
badge or, or something. Again, that, that's going to be that's going to be tricky for us to navigate because we don't want to affirm the, the, the LGBT agenda. But also, we don't want to say that we don't care and that we're not that we're we don't want to imply that we're against this particular group of people either. So we'll need to try to find some way of, of saying that, listen, I, I'm glad we, down, we, we now do live in a time when generally our society is, is against homophobia and against gay jokes and against gay bullying. Yes, and amen to that. But at the same time, I'm not sure I feel comfortable celebrating any one particular group's sexuality. And so it may well be that we feel that's the line we have to take. I know other Christians who don't wear a rainbow flag badge, but they just wear a rainbow badge. And so actually this is, this, is, this is a meaningful symbol for me as a Christian as well, because actually in the Bible, the rainbow is a sign that God says the next time I judge the world, I'm going to be the one who takes the hit. So there are different ways we can navigate this, but it's one of those issues where it's not a yes-no thing because neither yes nor no fully captures what we, what we want to be saying as believers. Who's next? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I raised the issue of, of do we go to gay marriages without then addressing it. Um, <laughs> So I, I, I affirm the question, and I'm, I'm glad people have that, that scenario, but um, uh, that doesn't then answer the question, does it? Um, I, I can't say yay or nay. I think that's the kind of thing. It depends on the person. It depends on the relationship you have and, and the dynamics. I'd want to kind of deal with that on a case-by-case basis. Um, I can't tell people what decision to make, but I hope I can speak to how we make the decision. And that is that we want to honour two things at the same time. We want to honour the things that we believe, the things that we, we trust God has said to us on these issues. We also want to honour the person and, who, and, and what they mean to us, whether it's a, a family member or a, or a friend or a colleague. And sometimes it's hard to know how to do both of those things at the same time. Um, there are good reasons to go and good reasons not to go and I think there are also bad reasons to go and bad reasons not to go so I've seen some people go and attend because they're thinking I don't want confrontation I don't want conflict this is just the path of the least resistance and I don't want to be perceived as nasty this is just easier I know other Christians who don't go because or oh, I don't like those people, I don't want anything to do with them. Those are both bad reasons. Um, so we need to make sure we're, we're, we're embodying both grace and truth. Grace and truth, we're told, go together in Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. Therefore, we, we don't choose between them. If we think we have one without the other, we don't have either. And so we, we mustn't separate grace and truth and think, well, I'm a truth Christian, and I just say it how it is, I'll just throw the truth grenade and don't care who gets blown up in the process. And similarly, we can't say, well, I'm going to be a grace Christian. I'm not going to be like those nasty ones who just say horrible things all the time. I'm just going to, be, I'm just going to exude niceness, and that's all I have to do. Biblical grace is truth-telling. And biblical truth is gracious. 
And so whether we whether we attend or not attend, we need to be honoring grace and truth. We need to be expressing and embodying grace and truth. So if we do attend, it needs to be in a way that isn't ultimately miscommunicating what we believe. That doesn't mean that the wedding itself is the time and place to have a massive conversation about sexual ethics. But it does mean we need to be very careful that we're not just perceived as are celebrating everything and whatever, you know, we're not relatives on, relativists on this issue. But certainly if we don't go, we need to be not going in a way that really does show someone how much they mean to us. And obviously if your conscience says don't go, then you mustn't go because we know in the scriptures we're to, to obey our consciences. So I hope, I hope that helps a bit. Um, I think we've heard from you too. Anyone, someone at the back? Yes, lady in the, the striped top. Thank you. So the question there is what about uh, church leaders who either identify as LGBT or in gay relationships and continue in church leadership? How do we, how do we kind of respond to that and, and deal with that? Um, yeah, I've, I have friends of mine who, who are in that position. And it's, at times it makes the friendship tense. It puts a strain on the friendship because... I've I've had to say to to some people that actually for for someone to to make the bible say that gay relationships are morally good in God's sight I think you really have to destroy your relationship to the authority of scripture I just think you've got to it takes so many gymnastics to to get the bible to say that that by the time you do you functionally you're not submitting to the authority of scripture as evangelicals have traditionally understood that i'm going to assume they're applauding me every time they do that um so one of the things i've had to say and it's not something i say remotely lightly is that if if someone has adopted in, in christian leadership a gay affirming position it's not just that I, I don't trust them to handle the Bible on that topic. I don't trust them to handle the Bible. And so I would not have them come and preach on anything. I also don't think they should be in Christian leadership. So I think this is, in other words, this, this to me is a red line issue. There, there are many other issues in the Christian life that are not. Um, I, I, I'm an Anglican. I have many dear friends who are... Presbyterians and, and Baptists, I, I always wind up my Baptist friends by saying, I don't think you go to hell for being a Baptist. I think, I think being a Baptist is punishment enough already. You don't need any, any additional. But that doesn't stop me having, you know, doing ministry together. And, and I, I love being part of, a, of a, the organization I work for. We have various views on all kinds of issues, from charismatic gifts to the role of women in leadership to any number of other issues. This issue is, is of a different order because... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that if we don't repent of our, of our sin, and he gives this as one example of that, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so actually that eternity is at stake, I think, on this issue. In, in Revelation 2, Jesus says to the, let, uh, Jesus says to the church in Thyatira that, that what he has against them is that they tolerate someone whose teaching leads his people into sexual sin. He doesn't just have issues with the teacher, he has issues with the church who tolerates the teacher. And if you read the description of Jesus in Revelation 1, you don't want that Jesus against your church. 
So I know that's not a, 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 a popular answer to give to that question, but I, I have to say I think it's serious enough an issue that would be the, the position I take. Thank you. Uh, we have time for a couple more, yes. So the question concerns sex education at schools. Is there confusion? How is that taught and imposed? Um, I think there's a huge amount of, of confusion, and, and obviously there's a there's there's an agenda there. Um, the, the the one of the purposes now in our 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 national curriculum is to normalise and celebrate all forms of sexual union, all forms of gender identity. And again, we we want to we do want to be very clear that we think. All people are of, of equal worth and respect and dignity. So we, we do want to affirm... I actually I want children to know about homosexuality and transgenderism because I want them to know these are people, these are people too, and we're people that we're, we're glad to know and, and have in our lives, even if we don't agree with everything. But the, the national curriculum, I think, is, is going much, much further than that. And therefore, I think Christian parents need to think very carefully about that, need to think very carefully about understanding what is being taught, what they say to their own children. And I think that the best advice I can give to Christian parents, not being a, a parent myself, is, is talk to other parents and find out what, what, how are you responding to this issue? What have you found is a helpful way of... We, we want our kids to understand the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics, but we don't want our kids to be Pharisees. So we don't want our kids to think everyone out there is bad and we're good because I'll meet some very nice people out there and then realise how hypocritical we often are. But we do want them to believe that God's words for us are, are good words, even if they're not always easy words. So we need to try and, and teach that in a way that is in the context of, of grace, that, that makes us humble as a family and, and, and not proud as a family. So that I'm not going to pretend that that's that straightforward. Uh, one very quick question. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. The, the question was if a same-sex couple came to, to church wanting their child to be baptised, what, what would we do? Um, I think what generally what, what I, I do when anyone from outside the church family wants to talk about baptism is, is to, to basically say something along the lines of, we would love you to understand what we believe baptism to be a picture of. And so it wouldn't be appropriate to, to baptise your child before you, you kind of know exactly what that is meant to be expressing and what you're promising and what that means. So we would love to spend some time with you trying to introduce you to the kind of essentials of the Christian faith. And if at the end of that, we can then review whether you think this is the right thing to do. That, that in one sense, that, that delays part of the conversation. But it means that by the time we have that part of the conversation, hopefully there's a, a gospel framework already in place that will make that conversation, I think, go a bit more healthily. Friends, thank you for, for your patience. Thank you for coming. Shall I quickly pray for us, or are you going to...? I'm going to thank you. Okay, I'll pray first. Father, we thank you for uh, the words that you give us in Scripture. We thank you for the teaching of Jesus on these issues of, of marriage and sex. We realise, Father, that... That teaching means that all of us have ongoing repentance uh, that needs to take place in our lives. Uh, all of us have need for ongoing grace in our lives. So, Father, please, first and foremost, humble us, thrill us again with your message of grace and help us to be 
winsome. Help us to be truthful. Help us to be a blessing. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.